Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Bruce, CEO of Nona Desalination, and they discuss how Bruce is finding product market fit for a revolutionary new technology, the challenges of turning salt water into drinking water at scale, and leadership lessons from MIT's MBA program. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. I'm really excited to talk about the water desalinization because I'd been researching it a few years ago. So when I saw you come up as a potential guest, I was I was super pumped. But I wanted to first speak to um, some leadership topics because... I saw that you've had a fantastic upbringing from where you started to where you've gotten today. So I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about where you started and then where you're at today. Yeah. So I'll just preface any leadership discussion by saying I'm in the camp who like is seeking advice and learning and growing, but I've had great examples. So I started at Ryerson Steel, which is a Chicago steel company and started there right out of school. I was an intern actually. And then was able to grow into, you know, entry-level analysts and senior analysts and, and able to work on a lot of cool stuff. And had a, a few really excellent leaders there who were able to mentor me and who really knew their stuff. I was one of few entry-level people. I was their first ever intern. And everybody else at this company in, in finance, I was in the finance department, they were the part of their careers where they started a big accounting firm and then like done the grind for 10 years and then come to this steel company to have like good work-life balance. And then there was me who was like starting my career there. So I just had awesome mentorship. Um, Kyle Shinnick was my, my first boss. He's a CFA, just like really knew his stuff and had a really good hands-off leadership style, which was greatly appreciated for me. Just kind of let me do stuff on my own and try it. And then he was more than qualified to come in and fix it, whatever I, whatever I had messed up. From there, I moved over to Rivian. I always loved being in, in hardware. I loved cars growing up. I, I liked being at the steel company a lot too because our customers were these really cool companies building trucks and tractors and stuff. But I wanted to get back to the West Coast and I wanted to work with cars again. So I went to Rivian and there it was such an interesting place because everybody was awesome. Everybody was great. It was like kind of a utopian experience almost. In most organizations, I think you've got kind of a range of people with commitment level and expertise. Rivian was just, when I was getting there, had only raised $2 billion, which is a lot. And by the time I left, they'd raised like 11 and were just about to go public. It was just getting popular. And everybody who was in green tech or automotive was like flocking to the place. So people are taking demotions, pay cuts coming from McKinsey and Bain and the CFO of Waymo while I was there, took like a position demotion to be the VP of business finance at Rivian. So it just gives you an idea of like people are people are making sacrifices to come into this company and they're all awesome. So just like everybody was an example there. Everybody was it, it really kind of made me need to step up my game and, and be sharp because everybody was so good. Did you ever get to drive one of the cars? You know, that's one of my biggest regrets. <laughs> I was going to, at one point, we like had a, a group that was going to take out a Rivian and they had like a fleet of prototypes that engineers could take out to test. So we had this car reserved. And then last minute, 
the CEO, RJ Scarange, brought some investors in unexpectedly and had to take the car. You got to get that 11 billion, man. <laughs> got to get the 11 billion. Yeah. So I missed out. I feel silly having never, never driven one. I left because I got into school at MIT. I had to come. Yeah. And so what did you study at MIT? So I'm doing an MBA, a uh, master's in business, and I'm half done. I'm still doing it. So that's why we're, we're here in Cambridge. So this is all pretty fresh. What type of content are they teaching in their leadership classes? Oh, I got to say, I'm going to sound like marketing materials from MIT, but the thing they boast is like max flexibility. So the first semester, it's core. They register you in your classes. It's like basic accounting, econ, getting the basic skills covered. And then you can do whatever you want. So for me, I knew coming in that I want to be an entrepreneur and I want to be doing hard tech. Even before I started working on this current business, I knew I wanted those things. And so my curriculum has been tailored towards that. So I'm taking entrepreneurship courses that that go through, you know, just like starting a business 101 and the whole course is working on a business. And then I've taken some specific product development classes too, which they do a great job of like mixing the MIT pot together. So you've got, you know, a third of the classes MBAs, a third of the classes engineers from MIT undergrad and, and master's programs. And then a third are industrial designers from Rhode Island School of Design that like come up from Providence, Rhode Island to take this class. So you've got these cross-functional teams, you're building a product. So very focused on developing a product and building a successful business. That's, that's what my education has been. Where did your interest in entrepreneurship come from? It's kind of, oh, that's like a deep-seated thing for me. I think, I think I grew up always feeling that my dad wanted to be an entrepreneur. Like my, the hero of capitalism in the con, my conservative household was the successful entrepreneur. And so that was part of it. I also, my background was uh, a little on the rougher side. I was in Western Washington. I shouldn't say rough, but I'm a first-generation college graduate. My parents have blue-collar jobs. So to pay for things in high school and then into college, I would, I would flip cars and jet skis and motorcycles. So I think, I, I think it started when I was like 12. Like My dad would bring home some free thing from the Craigslist free section, a jet ski, a mini bike, a go-kart. And, and then I would like get it working and rebuild the engine and, and then sell it and kind of move up the chain. Was able to have a car that way and was able to pay for a good chunk of my degree that way with these, with the, the cars that I amassed by the time I had to go to college. So that was kind of like an entrepreneurial journey and like my first one. And I always received a lot of praise for that from my parents, you know, at like for the, the entrepreneurial aspects of that. And then I entered the workforce. I worked in a bank to help pay for school too and cleaned carpets and worked at Costco. Like I did all these crappy jobs, even got into finance and I was like, this is not that great. So then it just like reaffirmed I should be an entrepreneur because that, that's way more fun than sitting at this desk. Oh, absolutely. My dad was an engineer, software engineer. And then my mom was like a stay-at-home mom. She was a cheerleader type person in high school. And then they got divorced when I was about 12. And my mom remarried an entrepreneur. So I had this sort of like, you know, excited part from the cheerleader from my mom, engineering from my dad, an entrepreneur from my stepdad. 
it's always interesting to see the mix. It sounds like in your house, though, your parents both had like normal blue collar jobs and like it was glorified the entrepreneur role or were they an entrepreneur at some point? Yeah, so it, it was glorified. My dad did have bouts of entrepreneurship. Like I shouldn't say bouts, but it was kind of always in, in his life too. So my dad was, was adopted. He was taken in by a guy through his formative years, like 16 to 20, who owned a piano business in Western Washington. It's called Pedago Piano. It's like the piano store. If you're north of Olympia, basically, and you want a piano, this is your guy. So my dad grew up, him and this guy's other sons, like running the business. So they're in a truck moving pianos or selling pianos or tuning pianos. So that's my dad's father figure, was an entrepreneur. And there was always kind of a feeling that my dad and the other sons would inherit the business. And that kind of has happened now. My dad is, he's a, he's a database administrator, but he's always kind of done piano stuff on the side. So you've always been like near it. It's always been around your family. Always. Exactly. Nice. And then like right now, I want to talk about what you're doing with water desalinization. Is it Nona? Is that how you pronounce it? Yes. What is that? So it's some, it's like no sodium. Oh, no N-A. <laughs> you guys are nerds. I love it. Yeah, and there's a little positive like to indicate that it's a positive ion. Those oh. are the yeah. That's great, man. We're okay if people don't realize that until like the fourth, fifth time they encounter the brand. Uh, we like that it's kind of subtle. But yeah, cat's out of the bag now. Yeah. So what's the main goal of this project? So that's a big question. We have goals at so many different levels. In the short term... We think that this project can solve water scarcity for individuals and small communities. And that can mean a bunch of different things. It was actually developed for the military to solve water scarcity for like deployed soldiers who have to be off grid, groups of 10. Um, that's who funded the development of this technology initially. We think that, you know, people who live in hurricane zones, maybe in Florida, maybe in Texas, who are thrust into water scarcity when there's a boil notice or the water stops flowing or there's floodwaters, we think we can, we can solve those people's problems. And sailors also who have lots of salt water and lots of sun, but not a lot of fresh water. So in the short term, we want to make a product that just is like really good for those groups. Because right now they're using portable reverse osmosis, which we can go into it, but it has a lot of flaws. And that's, that's what we think we can do in the relative short term. Beyond that, you know, we think we have some select advantages over reverse osmosis that can, that can treat a greater number of problems at a larger scale. So you know, we're looking at things like building water recycling in a commercial building. We're looking at water softening. You know, we're looking at developing world villages and communities you know, who, need, who need a slightly bigger solution than just the portable one we're doing right now. And that's where we're setting our sights right now. We'll see where the development goes. You know, at this point, we don't think that we will be able to displace reverse osmosis for like large-scale desalination and give water to the whole Middle East. But we'll see. We just need to keep developing towards the short-term goals and we'll see where it goes. Yeah, when I was doing the research for this episode, I didn't know that you had done the military. Like military was using this. That that's a great use case. And when when they were telling me portable, my first thought was I just did this special episode with a guy named Alexander and the episode was titled like wartime leadership because he was running an engineering 
company. They find engineers and you hire the engineers through them. They're called Lemon.io. But he has that company and it was based in Ukraine. And then the war happened and then like he came to New York, but their large part of their company is still in Ukraine and they were working out of a bomb shelter. And I was like, this is fascinating. Every day these people go to work at a bomb shelter and they're software engineers. And it was a really interesting episode. But the reason why I thought about that is because a lot of the lakes in Ukraine are saltwater. And so if you had this portable device, you know, if they're fleeing their country or, you know, whatnot, that could be super useful to them to survive. Absolutely. That's, that's a use case we would love to serve as well. And we have gotten so many calls from people in Ukraine or organizations giving aid to Ukraine wanting prototypes, wanting whatever we have now. And it just, it hurts, but we don't have, you know, it hurts that we don't have prototypes that we can be sending right now. We don't have any prototypes at that level beyond just our tests. But yeah, that's, we think that's a great application. And there's so many places like that where a lot of the water's salty. You know, a lot of the groundwater in the American Southwest is like that. Mexico, Brazil, salty groundwater, a lot of salty surface water. Yeah, and then you mentioned that the sailors have this reverse osmosis system. What's your system? Why is it different? How is it better? Yeah, so reverse osmosis, the way I explain it is that it's basically filtration. So with regular osmosis, you've got water flowing through a semi-permeable membrane. We all learn that in science class. But it flows from the fresh side to the salty side. So you'll make the fresh water salty if you just let it happen. You reverse the process by shoving a ton of pressure on the salty side and you push out clean water through this porous membrane. It's, it's, a, it's like a filter. To do that, you need high pressure. You need like 800 PSI. And so you need some high pressure pumps and plumbing. And that all takes a lot of power. So to run that, you need you know, a generator. You need a lot of batteries or just like a ton of solar. If you've heard that desalination is expensive... And energy intensive, that's, that's kind of why. You have to push water through this membrane at really high pressure. And also they go bad. They clog, you know, just like any filter will, they have to be replaced. So what we're doing fits in the category of an electromembrane process. So in desalination, you've kind of got three broad categories. There's reverse osmosis, there's distillation, which is boiling, distilling, and then there's electromembrane. Reverse osmosis and distillation, that's 95% of desalination. There are some niche electromembrane processes that work by basically passing water through a channel and sucking out salt and the bacteria with electricity. So it's great. You don't have the filter problem. Um, you can be more efficient in some settings. And there's a bunch of these different technologies. Electrodialysis is a, is a popular one. CDI is another one you'll hear of. They all have kind of their trade-offs in their niche that they're really good for. One thing that's unaddressed is is a technology that's electromembrane, you know, uses electricity to suck salt and bacteria out of the water that can remove the salts and the bacteria, the total dissolved solids and the total suspended solids, in other words. So our technology can do that. And that's what's novel about it. So you've kind of got an electromembrane process, no filters, that can compete with reverse osmosis in a different set of ways than any of the other existing processes. So it, it can have some real advantages, like depending on the setting. For urban scale, municipal scale desalination, the most efficient is still reverse osmosis. And we've not, us or any of the other electromembrane processes, we haven't cracked efficiency, cracked the reverse osmosis efficiency yet. 
is it just you haven't cracked it at that scale or at that scale exactly so at that scale um the metric is watt hours per liter reverse osmosis is doing like four watt hours per liter at that mega scale at the small scale you know they're they're struggling to get close to 10 and we're undercutting that at the really small scale where are you at on the small scale yeah we're we're around 10 so you guys are like similar we're really similar what's the benefit then why would i choose this system over the other system yeah so if you if we can get to parity with the efficiency then you know you have the opportunity to ditch all the other woes of reverse osmosis you're not changing membranes ah Every time, if you've got like a the most portable reverse osmosis device on the market is like 50 to 75 pounds and it's quite large. It's like bigger than a carry-on suitcase. And uh, every time you replace the one membrane, it's 300 bucks and it's all high pressure plumbing. So it's quite difficult to do that. You've got you've to have some savvy to be able to service that machine. So if you think about our device, it's, it's going to be 20 pounds. So it's less than half the size, and that, that matters if you're carrying it long distances. No filters to change. And then the ease of use is so huge. Uh, so first of all, there's the ease of use of changing the filters massively better because there's no filter to change. But then just operating it, you've got this device with reverse osmosis. You have to run this thing at 800 PSI. You've got a generator. You're starting. You're adjusting pressure. You're watching a gauge. And you have to keep it in this range. And it's extremely noisy. You're, you're talking like 76 plus decibels. It's freeway level noise. So it's kind of just like this bulky, difficult to use device. And they can't get smaller and they can't get quieter and they can't get easier to use. So we're coming in at, you know, half the size, hopefully half the cost, so much easier to use and, and get rid of the, filth, uh, the the membrane replacement problem. We think it'll be a lot more accessible for for users who want to have one in their home or take one in their RV or on their boat. It sounds like the bullet points that'll be on the front of the box, right? It's easier to service. It's half the weight you can carry and transport it. Low maintenance, no filters. What type of maintenance would it have? Like what type of maintenance does it have? So, so what you have with this electromembrane process is that you know, you're sucking all the salt and bacteria to one side of the channel and then you're pulling all the clean water out of the other side of the channel. You get some buildup on on the one side of the channel of all the of all the stuff all the particulates and stuff so what we can do is it, is it can actually self-clean so it's an electrode a positive side and a negative side so if we reverse the polarity and reverse the flow it can clean itself out we've been using the same membranes for like five years just in our lab tests and no issues no signs of fading so we don't anticipate any maintenance is the short answer that's awesome man and so where are you at as far as making this a business? Do you have orders? Are you still coming up with the first high production version? Yeah. So on the, on the technical side, we're, we're working on getting the scale up. We're doing, we're doing one liter per hour right now. And the military spec is 10 liters. They want 10 liters per hour. Um, we think we have customers at five liters per hour. So that's probably where we'll enter. You know, it's like one and a third gallons per hour. That's, that's enough for most survival circumstances for like a family. So that's on the technical side. For the business, we are, yeah, we're, we're looking for customers right now. So we've got a few hundred people who are 
subscribing to our newsletter and saying, we want to pre-order when we can pre-order. We've not started taking money yet because we, we just want to be really sure we have our, you know, the product specs defined and our pricing defined before we say, here's the price, put it down, put, you know, give us a deposit. But we're hopefully by the end of the year, we are taking money and yeah, we're optimistic those pre-orders will go well. Well, put me on that list. Unless if it's like an incredible industrial, like $100,000, that's, that's a little bit <laughs> much for, for me to play around with as a toy. But if it's something that, you know, the camping enthusiast community, wilderness type people, or something that like a family would buy, if it was in that price point, that's an easy yes. Is it just on the homepage? How do people sign up if they want to know? So yeah, if you go to the homepage at the bottom in the footer, there's like, uh, you know, put in your email, subscribe to the newsletter. And it'll ask you when you do that. Do you want to pre-order when that's available? There's also a contact form on the contact page where you can reach out if you're an investor or a media person or somebody who wants more info. What's the website? Oh, it's nona-technologies.com. N-O-N-A-technologies. But yeah, it's not a, we're not talking industrial machine pricing. We want to be priced at parity with other emergency preparedness devices like a portable generator. Okay, yeah. One to two thousand dollars. That's where we're gonna put the first unit, dude. I'd totally buy one of those for that price range. Like I said, I live out in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> and I've got a freshwater stream that runs through my property year round. And I always ask my wife, I'm like, should we like dig a well, like have a well dug or something? Because we have city water, even though we're out in the middle of nowhere. I was like, but if the city water goes off for whatever reason, we have this freshwater stream. But like, how are we gonna filter the water? So we've actually we have all sorts of different. Uh, short-term uses, right? There's like tablets you can put in. There's these survival systems that you can hang on a tree and like run water. But they're all they all have this like finite lifespan, and they all have their ups and downs. But it would be totally cool to have that like as part of your preparedness package. Yeah. Hey, we'll send you one. You could be a beta tester. There you go. For your for your use case, I mean, I think that you talked about some of those other solutions. If you've got plentiful fresh water on the surface. You know, there's much cheaper ways to do it, like you mentioned. Now they're all gonna, yeah, they're all gonna be more finite than our system would be. Oh yeah, will it filter fresh water? Like, will it still purify it, or it was only deals with salt water? Because you said it removes bacteria. Yeah, it'll it'll treat fresh water too. Oh, cool. This is why the military is interested. It's like a catch-all device. You don't really know what's in the water. Could be salty, could have bacteria, but this is just like the one-stop shop to to take out everything. Yeah. So. For your use, if you have one of our devices, you're uber prepared. We think it makes more sense value-wise if you like for someone who is on the Gulf of Mexico and like the water is definitely going to be salty. But hey, would love to give you a device too. No, that'd be super cool. I like how you guys made it like the OD green, like the military style color too. It looks pretty sweet. It's got, by the way, this is me seeing it for the first time. Yeah, that's what we're, that's what we're going for. We uh, are working with industrial designers. We've got some industrial designers on our team. We've got some mentors who we haven't officially signed yet, so I won't disclose, but from some really top-notch consumer electronic companies. Johnny and I have just left Apple, so maybe... <laughs> Am I letting the cat out of the bag? It's not Johnny Ive, but, uh, uh, but kind of in that genre, we think. So yeah, we're trying to really make this a consumer product because you know there are, there are desalination devices that are out there right now. You can get them but they've got technical issues that keep 
consumers like you and me from buying them. First of all, you're going to pay at least five grand. You've got the filtration problem. They're super noisy. They're huge. They're intimidating to use. And, and they, they need a generator probably. So we think if we can solve those technical issues and make it cheaper, remove the filtration, make it as easy to use as just a microwave, then we can bring it into people's homes. Whereas now nobody has desalination in their homes. That's kind of our hope. We want to we wanna set a really high bar for ourselves in terms of design. That rendering, the renderings you're seeing on the website right now are just about to be displaced by some more cool stuff. So oh, really? keep an eye on the website. The, the design is ongoing. Cool. I had a section of the conversation. I didn't go there because when I was doing my research, it was on large scale stuff. Like I was watching how people were choosing to build different types of plants on like a global map based off of like future needs and like water crises and like the, you know, 20s and late 30s and stuff like that of like, you know, 2030 and, and such. And then I was learning about how I didn't even think about this when you're in a desert country, all your water is imported or at least most of it. And so looking at like the cost of the processing of the water and the transporting of the water and all of this stuff, it was a fascinating rabbit hole to go down to, to learn about this entire industry. So understanding where your product sits and how it's going to help, I think it's brilliant. It's a super excellent market. And I'm going to be on your newsletter, man. Cool. Thanks. To be clear, it's kind of, it's kind of part of our, our ethos to not overpromise. So... There's maybe one strain of entrepreneur who would say, okay, we've got this desalination thing. Watch out world. We're going to like change it all. We're going to be in all those places. And we tend to take a little more, let our game do the talking approach. So those bigger plants, we don't see them in the future right now, but you know, our plan is to get into production with this first market that we know we can do well in and then self-fund development and see where it goes from there. Because obviously, like the big problems are the ones you're talking about. Those are the ones we really, we really want to address um, if we can. But I'm not, I'm not going out and saying, you know, we're going to solve that problem in in ten years. Give me ten million dollars. Uh, we don't want to set ourselves up for that. No, I, I like that Elon Musk. Uh, I'll give you an example of one of his. He's got so many businesses and has made so many claims. Specifically, the brain computer interface things that he's working on, Neuralink. So he says, like, this is where we want to go, but here's the current commercial thing that allows us to make money, grow the company, and continue to explore new ideas. But you entering this very clear market so that you have a sustainable business, then you've got a million, you got infinite at-bats to solve other problems. And that's the sweet spot. Yeah, yeah, that's, you used to understand, you stated it much better than I did. That's exactly what I wanted to do. Tell MIT I'll come lecture, but there's a fee. No, <laughs> <laughs> you should charge a fee, yeah. But yeah, it's always fun to get to hang out and talk with people like you, Bruce, as you progress and hit milestones within the company, like you have your device out, things like that. Let us know. We'll have you back on the show because I think what you're doing is awesome. It's super interesting to me personally, and I'm more than happy to help you any way we can. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us on this time. We'd love to come on again as we you know, some of those milestones. And yeah, just thanks for the opportunity. Great talking to you. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. 
Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going. 